Now, beloved, if you would be so kind, turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're, we're going to be uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit because thus far, uh, the preacher, I call him the preacher because we don't know who the author was. There is some speculation that it could have been uh, Paul. Uh, that case can be made, but there's some things that mitigate against that as well. Thank you, Paul. But I call him the preacher because it is a brief word of exhortation that he's given the church. And he's spoken at length, and perhaps uh, he's been long in the tooth for some of us, regarding doctrine. Right? We, we want to get to it, Pastor. Get, get to the, the stuff I have to do. Right? You see, that's what the church is always bidding. It's been this way since, at least since the Reformation Luther was apt to talk about how folks want to get to the application. What must I do? And that's a valid question. And I would never want to diminish that question because what we do flows out of who we are and what God has done in Jesus. But you see, if we don't know who we are, if we don't know whose we are, and we don't know what he's done, then we're going to rush into error. We're going to rush into misunderstanding the gospel and the role of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the fuel. The gospel is the current. The gospel is the power to do. And if we don't understand the gospel, then we're not going to do. Because the great imperative of the New Testament is just this. Christian, be who you are. Be a fruit tree that produces the fruits of the Spirit in union with Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control will organically flow out of one who's rooted, grounded, cemented, moored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't get that, then we're wasting our time. Then you can go to the synagogue down the street. This is a gospel church. This is a Christian church. We preach Christ and him, my currency. That's all that I have. And all the implications that flow out of that. Now, the preacher here in Hebrews, he's shifting gears. He's going to tell us, Given the great reality of the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, whom God has spoken to in these last days, therefore, you see, the therefore flows out of the what God has done. And that's exactly what he's going to do as we look at this beginning at verse 19 of chapter 10 all the way to the end. We're going to be talking and, and driving home the implications of the gospel. Now that I'm a Christian, now that I have a high priest, now that I'm perfect in union with Jesus Christ, I'm definitively sanctified, I'm being progressively sanctified, what are the implications? What is the therefore? We're going to see that as we work through the text before us today, as he shifts gears, as it were, in verse 19. But by way of context, Let's go back, because he goes back, and he repeats himself over and over again. For you see, the mother of all learning is repetition. It's catechesis. We have to understand the grammar 
of the gospel if we're going to live it out in time and space. So let's begin in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 25 of chapter 10. This is the word of the living God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. He's speaking about the Mosaic Covenant now, right? The Levitical priesthood, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that is a once-for-all sacrifice, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, a once-for-all offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying from Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant. This is the new covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he, the Spirit, adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You follow the logic? If I say once for all sacrifice that's definitively set us apart and cleansed us of our sin, then why are we going to continue to offer sacrifices? We're not. Notice what he says, the very next word in verse 19. Here's the, the fulcrum, the hinge. Therefore, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way, he, Jesus, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his, that is, Christ's flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us come to worship with a, with a true or sincere heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, let's think about it, how to stir up one another to, to love and good works, not neglecting or forsaking to meet together, as is the pattern or habit of some, but encouraging Keep on encouraging, the tense here, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see what? You see the day drawing nigh. What day is that? That's the day of the Lord. That's the second advent of the King of kings and Lord of lords. As we see that day approaching, let us together, let us draw near, let us hold fast and let us encourage, for the day of the Lord is near. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we come before you longing to be fed by your word. Like needy little birds in a nest whose necks are straining 
to their mother to give them something to eat. So your people come. We come to you, O bread of heaven, to be fed by you. We have no other good but you. You are our good. And with you there is no shadow of turning. And every good thing in our life has come from your hand. Whatever it is, all of it, all the good is from you. So, Lord, would you stir our hearts to draw near, to love, and to hold fast as we rely and are grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, for you do not change. Lord, may I decrease, may you increase. We pray this for your glory and the good of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Many think Paul perhaps wrote this letter because they see the, the structure, the architecture, the infrastructure, the, the, the girding, as it were, the blueprints of it, as it were, because it follows a, a semi, similar trajectory. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here, just to help you flesh it out and help me understand what I'm trying to say. You know how in Romans, Paul spends those first 11 chapters what is he doing? He's laying out the gospel. He's laying out the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. But then he gets to chapter 12, and Paul makes a strong right turn. He says this. He says, therefore, right, drawing out implications of all I've just laid out in 11 chapters, therefore, in view of the first 11 chapters and all that God has done in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is your righteousness, he's your song, he's your meat, he's your drink, he's everything to you. Therefore, in view of those, that great gospel and God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see how the imperative flows very naturally out of the indicative, right? I know we're not uh, grammatians, or what would be the word? Peter will correct me when I'm wrong. But, you know, some of us don't know grammar very well. But that's all Paul's doing. He's saying, because God's done this, now you go and be this. That's what he's saying. Here are the implications of it. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians. He spends the first three chapters talking about what God has done in Christ. My good friends, Pastor Pritchard and Pastor Isak, are going to be laying out Ephesians to us. And we're going to see this pattern where, where Paul brings the indicatives. Here's what God has done in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This calling I've just laid out for you in chapters 1 to 3, I want you to live in the light of that. I want you to live the Christian life out of the reality of who you are in Jesus, who he is for you, and who you are in him. Well, that's exactly what we find here in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 19. After describing the glorious mercy of God in Jesus, the preacher says, Therefore, brothers, in view of Jesus Christ as your great high priest, in view of the fact that your sins are forgiven, 
past, present, and future sins forgiven, washed. You're adopted. You're God's child in union with Jesus. That cannot change. Now, that fellowship can be broken. But your union with Christ can never be broken. Right? It's just like being a bullock. I have five children. Do my children disappoint me? Do they break fellowship with me? Yes. Do I disappoint them? Do I break fellowship with them? Yes. But it cannot, it cannot destroy the integrity of the established relationship as father-child or child-father. But it can destroy the fellowship that we enjoy. This is why we confess our sins every Sunday morning, right? Because we want that fellowship. We want that sweet, sweet communion with Jesus restored. We want to walk in the joy of the Lord. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because we have this past week, individually, corporately. We haven't been all that God's called us to be. And we've actually transgressed His law. We've done things that He said not to do. So we come confessing our sins because we know he's faithful and just as our father to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not to be re-justified. That's not what we're doing. He's restoring us back into the family. Come back to the table, my child. Come back to who you truly are in union with my son. You see, that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is doing for us here, showing us the great indicatives and the imperatives that flow out of it. Enough grammar. All right. Two points this morning. We're going to first look at our confidence. Where's our assurance found? Where's our assurance found? Where's our confidence found? And then we're going to look at three exhortations. Three exhortations that flow out of that confidence, out of that assurance. So the first point, before we look at the exhortations, it's vital that we understand that the exhortations are where? They're cemented in the work of Christ, in Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice. Notice what he says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, let's just stop there. (laughs) You're thinking at that rate we're going to be here all day. Therefore, brothers, but it's vital that we understand this. We are the family of God. He doesn't say, therefore, servants. That would be appropriate, right? That would be right. But notice what he says, therefore, brothers. And you can include sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in union with your elder brother, Jesus Christ. You see, he calls us to be a family, not just an assembly of servants. And as the family of God in Jesus Christ, we now have a confidence. Notice this word confidence can also be translated assurance. We have confidence. We have assurance. We have boldness to enter the holy places. That is the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And as we're going to see in verse 22, we have confidence to do what? To draw near the very thing that the saints, now listen, the saints in the Old Covenant longed to do and were unable to do so because the blood of bulls and goats cannot bring you into the Holy of Holies. You need better blood. You need a better covenant. And Jesus has brought better blood and a better covenant. And he brought us where? Into a tent in the middle of Palestine? Is that where we go to worship? No. 
You know where we worship, church? When we gather, we gather here locally in Richmond, 3000 Grove. Yes, that's right. But we gather corporately with the church triumphant, the church invisible in heaven. Do you know there are myriads of angels watching what we're doing right now? Do you know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Hannah, and Ruth, all the saints who've gone before us, Calvin and Luther, are joined with us as we worship? And we're worshiping in the eternal presence of God, in the eternal present moment, right this very moment, in God's holy presence. We have a confidence to draw near. Do you notice what the preacher does not say? Does he notice, you notice this, that he doesn't say you can only come confidently, boldly, and with assurance when you feel like it. Is that what it says? No, Pastor Bullock. It doesn't say anything about me. The stress here is not on a subjective feeling of confidence, of assurance, and boldness, but rather on the objective reality of what Christ has already accomplished. Our confidence is stated as a fact. He's saying if you have confidence, well, you know, you might have it, you might not. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying we have confidence because that confidence is not found where? It's not found in here. It's not found behind your sternum, in your obedience, in your righteousness, in your religious ritual. In the works of your hands, your righteousness is found where? In Jesus Christ. That's your confidence. That's our boldness. That's our assurance. Said it as a fact. It's not an exhortation. You see, saints, your access has been purchased by Christ. It cannot be repealed by our feelings. I love this verse, and I've used it before in the assurance of pardon. 1 John 3.10, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Isn't that awesome? He knows everything. Beloved, do you ever think you have a perfect, pure thought? No, no. Oh, no. No, even your thoughts need to be purified by the blood of the Lamb. Every thought. When you think of Him, it's even imperfect. You see, We see through a glass dimly. None of us are perfect, but He is. That's my confidence. That's my assurance. That's my boldness. You see. Beloved, if I didn't have that, how could you do this job if you didn't have the assurance that Christ was my confidence, that Christ was my boldness, that Christ is my assurance? You see, you can't. You can't. But we have it. That's the basis. He secured it, you see. Our confidence is grounded in the perfect priestly work of Christ, 1 John 2, 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is a legal way of saying we have a defense attorney. We have one. We put a retainer down. He represents us before the Father. What do we do to secure it? What do we do to secure so great a heavenly advocate? Nothing. We've gained access through our own merits? No, but solely by the blood of Jesus. That's the basis. That's the ground floor of the Christian life. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Saints, Christ has entered the 
Father's presence. And you know who he brought with him? He brought Bill, Jane, Pastor Bullock, yes, even a teaching elder. was brought. When he ascended, we ascended with him. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are currently situated and seated where? In heavenly places. Now, it's true we reside here in Richmond, and we live between the already not yet of that great reality, but spiritually speaking, we're in union with Jesus Christ. We're seated with him in heavenly places. He brought us to the throne of grace. Notice what he says in verse 20. The preacher says, We enter the very presence of the living God by a new and living way. He, Jesus, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We have gained this new and living way, not through the blood of bulls, but through the blood of a better sacrifice, a a better covenant. He says, through the curtain, the way has been secured. Now you're thinking, this word curtain, I'm familiar with this. I know this word you speak of. Now, the curtain was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And now he's showing us and laying out for us that symbolically that curtain for, serves as a type pointing to Jesus Christ, that his body was the, was the curtain. And just like the curtain was rent in two from top to bottom there in Matthew 27 on Good Friday at 3 p.m., when the Lord Jesus at the cross crying, it is finished, John 19, 31, you need to know that verse, it is finished, it was ripped from top to bottom. So that access that was quarantined off for all sinners has now what? Has been opened. And notice that it's torn in two. Notice that God didn't roll it up, Mr. Hutton. He didn't roll it up, only to unroll it at a later date. He destroyed it. Church, do you see the truth of the gospel? Is the Spirit working in your heart this very moment, giving you eyes to see what he breathed out through his prophet, through his preacher here in Hebrews? That you have access to the Father. That the curtain is no more. You can come boldly, humbly to the very throne of God in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Oh, couldn't you just sit there and marinate in that for a thousand years? Ten thousand years? Oh, the height, the depth, the width, the length. Oh, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. How beautiful a Savior. You see, it's torn in two. The way into God's presence has been opened through Christ's body, His flesh, through the veil, once for all. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. All the partitions, all the barriers, all the purity laws that marked you off as unclean have been removed. Saints, we have a confidence grounded in the reality, according to verse 21, that Christ is our great priest, Over the house of God. What is the house of God? 
We're the house of God. We're the living stones, as Peter would say. Each one of us, Bill and Susie and Jim and Betty, we all being formed together by the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, fashioned, knit together to form a living temple, living bricks, right? Think about the bricks in this wall, in this church. They're beautiful. It's a lovely building God's given us. It's not the church. You're the church. And God's brought us in different sizes and personalities, tall, short, fat, skinny, smart, not so smart. We're all fitting together. That's why he's going to go on to say, why would you forsake yourself the assembling together? If God's knit you together in the power of the Holy Spirit, why, why would you not want to be here? Where would you else would you want to be? Notice this confidence, though, is, is not found in ourselves and our works and our rituals or anything we can do. Well, that's the ground floor. I, should I go on? You know, really, no, I'm serious. Should I continue to preach the imperatives? Because that's where we're going. But if you don't understand the ground floor, then I can't go on. You've got to understand your spiritual GPS, your Garmin. Where are you? Right? God calls to Adam, Adam, where are you? Why did God do that? Because God didn't know where Adam was? Well, no, we know that can't be. No, he wants Adam to know where he is, where he is. So he says it to us today. Where are you, Christian? Spiritually speaking, you know what you can say? Father, I'm in union with your son. I'm seated with your son in heavenly places. I'm your child. Your spirit lives within me. It cries out within me, Abba, Father. That's where I am. The father says, yeah, that's right. You are my child. I am your father. Therefore, let's go. Let's look at the three exhortations. Three times, notice what the author does. Not once, not twice, but three times. Just like in the Gospels when Jesus says, truly, truly. When God says something more than once, you need to take care. If he says it three times, like he does in Isaiah 6, holy, 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 you better perk up, straighten up, I'm locked in. It's like when your mama calls you by your whole name, Dennis Stewart Bullock, you get there. Three times. Notice these exhortations are a group activity. He's speaking corporately to the church. As the church gathers for worship. Because now, not only individually do we have access, right? We typically think that way, and that's not wrong. But I think here, the verbs are in the plural. He's, he's saying, we, y'all, us, have access. We can draw near. Notice what he says. Verse 1, let us draw near, verse 22 rather, let us draw near in faith, verse 22. 
Notice, with a true or sincere heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, Christian, in Christ, your sins have been removed. We now have access, blood-bought access, to draw near as the body of Christ. Right As we come to worship on the Lord's Day, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, 52 times a year, he gives us four guidelines, right? Four, four uh, bearings, if you will, to help us know and how to do it. Guidelines to draw near. Notice what he says. He begins with sincerity. Let us draw near with a true heart. Well, what's a true heart? This is a heart that relates to God in spirit and in what? Truth. We come the way he's prescribed. We don't just willy-nilly, right? We're not avant-garde. We're not going to make it up as we go along. No, we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. He's prescribed how we are to worship him. This is why Presbyterian family, we call it the regulative principle of worship. It's well thought out. We can only worship God in the way he's prescribed. What happens when you don't worship God in the way he's prescribed? I don't know, ask Nadab and Abihu. What happened to them? Their intentions were well intended. I really believe it. I truly believe that Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 believed in their heart of hearts what they're doing was right. But there's a way that seems right. Right, church? It seems right. It seems true. But in the end, it leads to death. And it did for them that day. They offered strange fire. We're told that the, the, the Lord's anger went out against them. It's, it, it literally smoked them. He's good. But he's not safe. I don't know how else to say it. He's a consuming fire. Truly, he's a fire of love, but it's a holy love. In his eyes, we're told, in Habakkuk, are too pure to look upon iniquity. He must be worshipped in the way that he's prescribed, with a heart that's been cleansed of sin and relates to God with true affections. This is the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is my strength and the strength and my portion forever. Oh, to be in that place. God, would you take me there? <laughs> would you plant me there, Lord? In Psalm 73. That I might know that thy goodness is better than life. Oh, you love me. Oh, how you love me, Lord. And to know so little of your love. I talk a good game. Oh, yeah, I can talk a great game. Probably better than 99% of you. But I know so little of him who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, to my shame. Oh, to be taken here. Secondly, we, we draw near to God in worship. Notice, in full assurance of faith. This is a heart that has an unwavering trust in God and his promises. 
It lives not, not, not by what is seen, right? It's not carnal. It just, what's real is what's seen. No, that's the very antithesis of what Paul says. Paul says those things that are seen are what? Temporary. They're passing. But those things that are unseen are eternal. See, that's why the writer to the Hebrews is going to tell us in just a chapter or two, or actually the next chapter, faith, now listen, faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for and the conviction of things, what? Seen? Oh, no, that's not what it says. It says not seen. <laughs> we don't see him, but we love him. Thirdly, church, let us draw near in worship to God with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is the very thing the sacrifices of the old covenant could not do, which was cleanse the conscience. But now in Christ, our new covenant, the new covenant, our hearts are sprinkled, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And now he sets our hearts free because we're no longer knotted up and and bound up with guilt. We're no longer under, living under the dominion of sin, right? We now have the option to, to, to not sin, right? We can sin and not sin because sin no longer is reigning in our heart. We can choose not to sin. And we can put sin to death, the power of the Spirit. This is Paul's argument in Romans 7 and 8, right? We're putting to death. And we're walking not according to the flesh. Because that's not who we, we are. We're no longer located in the first Adam. We're now located where? In the last Adam. Do you see what doctrine means? Do you see how practical doctrine is? If you don't know where you are, then you're not going to know what to do. Church, you're in union with Christ. God loves you. He's for you. He's justified you. What can man do to you? Well, they can do a lot. They can kill me, but that serves his purposes. For to be absent of the body, if he's present with the Lord. See, he's freed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Fourthly, church, let us draw near in God in worship, having, notice what he says, having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what do you think this means? Having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, if you've got your thinking caps on, and you know the two sacraments of the church, you're thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like baptism. And you'd be exactly right. Right? What baptism symbolically shows and signs is now seen. This, this washing, this is the promise of the new covenant that Mr. Fender read from Ezekiel 36. Notice what God says there. He's speaking to his people in the old covenant, right? One covenant of grace administered in two testaments, the Old Testament, New Testament. Salvation's the same. One faith, one Lord. But notice what he says. I will sprinkle clean, with wa clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, beloved, this morning let us draw near to worship 
with true hearts and full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean as new creations in Jesus Christ. You see, he goes about cleansing us from the inside out. He, he takes his law now. He no longer writes it with his finger on stone. Where does he write it? He writes it on your heart. So you love the law of God, right? We're not antinomians. We're not antinomos, right? We're not against the law. We're not, we don't have our own law. We have the holy law of God. And it's sweet. It's sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. Oh, how I love thy law. That's what the child of God says. The moral law of God is the rule of obedience. Not to earn God's favor, but to delight in his favor. To live a life worthy of the gospel as a living sacrifice. Because he set my heart free. Well, the second exhortation. Let's look at that. Verse 23. Let us hold fast in hope. Our confession without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this word confession here carries with it the sense of public doctrinal confession, right? We have the Westminster Standards. That's our public doctrinal confessional standard, right? We believe, this is what we principally believe about who God is and what he said for us to do, right? That's exactly what is revealed in the, in the um, Westminster Standards. But unfortunately today in the church, there are many who hold who are very fast and loose with the truth. What prior generations of Christians willingly died for, today we consider needless points of doctrine. Uh, we don't need doctrine. Doctrine just divides. You're exactly right. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. So when you go to surgery... The doctor's got to take the tumor out. You want him to divide something, don't you? You want to take out what's ailing you. You want him to excise it. You want him to remove it. You want someone who can cut correctly. You want a preacher who can cut correctly. You want a teacher who can cut correctly. Because what's at stake? What's more precious to you than you? You're at stake. You're in the balance. I'm in the balance. That's what's at stake. Everything. You see, doctrine is not valued and readily discarded in the name of contextualization. Let me give you two. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the speed in which the evangelical church in the West is embracing and teaching the heresy of identity politics. I'm blown away with it. They're re-erecting the wall that Jesus says he took down in Ephesians 2, between Jew and Gentile. How about woke ideology? Just another way of saying social Marxism. It's finding platforms where? Not just in the pew, but in the pulpits. Dividing the church. We got to come out from amongst them. We got to cling to pure doctrine, infidelity, and live out the implications of that doctrine in faithfulness, in kind heartedness, in humility, in gentleness. 
But God in his goodness, church, because God in his goodness, many in the global church are valiantly standing for truth and holding fast, whether it's Sudan, whether it's in China, where I've heard just recently they're bulldozing true biblical churches. Churches that are true, known by the gospel fidelity, known by sacraments, known by the discipline. They're bulldozing them. They're changing the very Bible that you have in your hands. They're rewriting God's holy word. This is what the, the, the Chinese communist government is doing. But many are standing firm in the face of this. This week I read about a couple in a small village in Pakistan. My brother and my sister, husband and wife, who came to Christ out of Hinduism. His name is Sahid, and her name is Mamona. Well, this did not sit well with Sahid's family. After hearing of Sahid's conversion to Christianity, Sahid's family began to talk among themselves. They went to visit him, imploring him, come on, you need to return back to Hinduism. Eventually, they sent the, the Hindu teachers to come into his house, leaders urging him to return. And when that didn't work, a, for, a few weeks later, someone set their home on fire. And two of their five children died in that fire, the two youngest. All for the cause of Christ. But as of today, they continue to remain steadfast, holding fast their confession of hope without wavering. And they had every reason in the world to waver, didn't they? Like we waver because we're compromised by pleasure. They waver because their children are burned and fire set by adversaries of the gospel. But they know the God who promised is faithful. That's why they remain steadfast. And even more important than that, God knows them. Over and over in Hebrews, we've been told, hold fast. And you're tired of hearing it. You're tired. You're, you're, hey, Pastor, don't you have something else? You need to get somebody else in. Because I'm going to keep preaching. Hold fast to Christ. Don't let him go. Sell all that you have. I don't care what it is. Friend or foe. Mother or father. Brother, sister, child. You hold fast. You hold fast to him who loved you. And gave himself for you. Third. Draw near in faith. Hold fast in hope. And stir up in love. Notice the trifecta. Faith, hope, love. Let's look at it. Verse 24, 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to loving to works. Right? Again, we're the family of God. We're to care for each other. Faith and hope cannot be practiced individually, or can be, rather, excuse me, faith and hope can be practiced individually. You can exhibit hope in isolation in a cell, right, in the bottom of a cistern, 
right, wherever, in isolation. But you know what you can't do in isolation? I can't love Rick in isolation. I cannot love you in isolation. Notice the Holy Spirit says here to consider, meaning he wants you to give gray matter to it. He wants you to be diligent in thinking about how you can tangibly, concretely, practically, not theoretically, not abstractly, not only in words, love that person sitting beside you, in front of you, and behind you. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to use mental energy to do it. We are to stir up one another in love, toward love and good works. You see, love must be preserved, or pursued rather. He wants us to think about how we're going to help that sister this week who's discouraged, who's struggling. Her arms are feeble. Her knees are weak. We must be ready to help her make level paths for her feet. Do you know that there are people in this church, yes, all saints, whose arms are feeble, whose knees are weak, who need the gifts that you have by the Holy Spirit to come along and to help that sister in Jesus Christ? Or that doubting brother we're called to be merciful to and saving others, as Jude says, by snatching them from the fire and to others show mercy mixed with fear. Paul to the Galatians says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Did you hear that? Let me read it to you again. Bear one another's burdens, which precludes that we're involved in each other's life, that we actually know each other's burdens. I know and you know we're known and we make efforts to be known. We put ourselves out there. I'm a Christian who doesn't have it all together. I'm struggling in my thought life. I'm struggling telling the truth. We're sharing our burdens. We're sharing our struggles. We're sharing the very temptations that we're enmeshed in. We're bound up in. We're thinking, does God care? Does he love me? And the navel gazing is not the ticket. That's not where the victory's found. The victory's found at the cross. And you need a friend who'll take you to the cross. Not someone who will just tell you what you want to hear. This word stir up is the word to be provocative. It can be used negatively or positively. Here it's being used positively. He's saying to stir it up. Give mental energy to it. Stir it up. Meaning... You're not coming along just saying little nice little Christian slogans, you know, unicorns, popcorn, nice pastel colors. No, he's saying iron sharpening iron. It's an elder looking in the eyes of a communicant child speaking truth because he loves her. That's what it is. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of the Lamb and you finishing the race and running the race with integrity 
and vigor because he's worthy of your best. Speaking the truth in love. 25, verse 25, notice what it says. Not neglecting to meet, that is to worship, as is the habit of some, unfortunately, even there in the book of Hebrews. You think maybe that's why some of them are committing apostasy? You better believe it. That's why they're committing apostasy, some of them. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing nigh. You see, perseverance is a church-wide endeavor. We must be present in each other's lives, and we must be present in corporate worship if we're going to endure to the very end. Now, remember the context, right? They're being persecuted. Their children are in that home, and they're setting it on fire, and two of them are dying, perhaps. And fear may be causing many to neglect the assembling And yet the Holy Spirit calls them what? Well, if they're going to burn your house down, maybe you shouldn't go today. And, and you know what? You want to use wisdom. You're not running into fires. You're not running into gunfire. Not all the time. This is why you got to be walking with God. So you'll know what to do in the crosshairs of the moment. When eternity and time kiss and intersect, you'll know, what do I stand? Do I stay? Do I continue? What, what do I do, go God? And if you're walking with God, he's dwelling with you and he's going to lead you. Yes, I believe that. I really believe that the Holy Spirit leads his people supernaturally. He, he opens doors and he closes them. I believe that. But if we're going to endure, we've got to gather together. How about us? I'm afraid it's all too easy to neglect worship as though it's optional. Many take a, a, a take it or leave it attitude. Can you imagine being married and never being with your spouse? Would you want to be in that marriage? No, I don't want to be in that marriage. Yeah, I love you, but I'm never with you. What? Likewise, we've taken vows, just like in marriage, to gather for corporate worship. And it's vital that we make it a priority. You see, we're teaching our children not just by what we say, by what we value and what we love. I don't think I fully understood that, right? I was really consumed with catechizing, and there's a place for that, and that's right and good and true and needs to be done, but not to the exclusion of warning my children not only to submit to God's law, but Lord, would you give my heart to love your law, that they would love him. You see, that's what we want. We want God to, we want God to work, that he works love in the hearts of our children. Right, like Joseph. Oh, how could I sin against God in this way? I can't do that. He loved me. He gave himself for me. I can't be looking at pornography. I can't. It's not who I am. I'm a son of the king. 
Christian Christ has promised to build his church, and the very means to building that church are word, sacrament, and prayer. So you want to grow, you want to finish the race. It's very simple. Be in corporate worship. You need the means of grace. We, some reply, well, well, pastor, don't you teach justification by faith alone? Oh, you better believe it. Yes, God has ordained the end. He's ordained your election, but he's also ordained the very means to that end. And our attendance under the means of grace in the local church is part of the means, one of the means that God uses to grant us endurance. No one in this room, and me first and foremost, can survive apart from the means of grace, apart from corporate worship. You see, saints, we're in this together. And if you're not here, you're not present in worship, we're less than. You see, you each have gifts and graces that we all need if we're going to grow up in Christ, right? We're a body. Suppose your body on Sunday morning were to say to your head, your brain, let's just go with me for a minute, imagination. Your liver says, you know, I'm not going today. I'm just, you know, I'm tired. I was out late last night. I'm not going to church today. How long do you think the body, kids, is going to last without its liver? Or a kidney? Or an eye or a knee or elbow? Do you value worship? Do you make it a priority to be here? When the elders call us together, they don't do it as overlords. Oh, they're just meanies. They want us to be with them all the time. No, 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 no. We want you to finish because we're going to give an answer. I'm going to give an answer for you. Pastor Bullock, my child, my son, what about Mary? Were you invested in Mary's life? Did you stir her up? Did you exhort her? Did you encourage her? Did you love her? Did you hug her? Did you weep with her? Did you laugh with her? Did you bring her my gospel? Do I do it perfectly? No, I fail. But I want to. You don't fall into excellence. You don't fall into a mature disciple of Jesus without being in the visible church and without being faithful in attendance. Three exhortations moored and cemented. Think of it like this. You've got this, this base. It's concrete. And you've got three pillars. And at the concrete is Jesus, my righteousness. And let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast our confidence, our confession in hope. And let us stir up. And let us consider and give thought to and encourage one another to love and good works, right? Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. Pretty simple, isn't it? Church, let's continue to draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your faithful word. We thank you for its clarity. We pray that you would continue to drive it home. Lord, we're prone to leave the God we profess to love. Oh, Lord, we take our hearts and we put them on the altar. We ask, Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be conformed to you.
that you would take our minds, our hearts, everything about us, from the crown of our head to the bottom of our foot, and use it for your glory, for you're worthy of all that we have. It's really a shame that we only have one life to live for you. Oh, to have more. May we be faithful. And may we live in the light of the great day that's drawing nigh. For it's closer today than when we first believed. So give us grace. Give us faith. Give us perseverance. And we thank you in Jesus Christ that we have all of these things. Help us to work it out now with fear and trembling. For it is you who work to will within us. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.